Well, good morning, all. We're still in the same section of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16 to 21. And this is actually part three, but we move on from repentance and we're talking about the watchman's responsibility. It's our responsibility to share the gospel. And so that's the main focus of today. So we'll, as usual, start with our memory verse. So, nice big voices, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So last week, just to quickly revise what we did last week, it's about repentance. So firstly, God sets the example. Because he loves us, he warns us of the consequences of sin. So if we love others, we will warn them of the consequences of sin. It's just like warning someone they're going to walk off the edge of a cliff soon if they keep going that way. Secondly, without genuine repentance, a person cannot be saved. And we read last week about the stories that Jesus told the people in his day. We could die any time, and unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. And true repentance will result in godly fruit being produced in our lives. We will be changed from glory to glory, transformed from glory to glory by who? The Holy Spirit, yes. It's his job to change us. So don't try and change yourselves. What's our job? Spend time in the presence of God. That's it. Get into the Word. Spend time without distraction, just with the Lord. And at the same time, during the day, obey Him. And you will change into the image of God as you abide in Him, and you will experience the joy of walking with Him. So God does that work, and we can make it easy for Him as our Father, or we can make it difficult for Him as our Father, but He will still do the work. He's a good Father. He will still change us. So the fourth thing we went through last week was the characteristics of a repentant heart. We have a new attitude. So a repentant heart has a new attitude, and it goes from spiritual pride, where I think I'm a good person, to humility, where I recognize that I'm poor in spirit or I'm morally bankrupt. And Romans 7.18, we come to realize that this is true for ourselves. I need to recognize this is true for myself, that in me, that is in my sinful human nature, there dwells no good. So remember the entire human race was completely corrupted when Adam sinned. We're all guilty of breaking God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, because we have a nature that loves doing that, and therefore we're deserving of death. And Jesus' examination, or Jesus' diagnosis of the human race, as applied from Revelation 3.17, he says we are poor, wretched, blind, and naked. So, the other thing we learned about the characteristic of a repentant heart is because we have a new attitude, we have new priorities. 
we put Jesus first. And we learnt that repentance means that our relationship with God is much more important than our relationship with our family, with our friends, and even our own life. And he said, Jesus said, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You read that in Luke 14, 25 to 33. And we also learnt that Jesus said we must first sit down and count or consider the cost, the pros and cons of following or not following Jesus. It's not something you take lightly, this commitment to be a Christian. It's a lifetime commitment and it's a total commitment. And Jesus warned that an insincere commitment is a non-commitment. God demands control of all parts of our lives and we must be willing to give God permission to take away or change any part of our lives. That's what it means to be a Christian. We trust him, that he loves us, that he is good and that his process of change will conform us into his image, and that's a good thing. So this week, I want to answer four questions. What are the different levels of responsibility that God has given to different people to warn others about the consequences of sin? Why people are deceived? What damage is caused by false prophets? Why does God allow false prophets? And what are the terrible judgments that await the false prophets. And fourthly, what does God require of the everyday believer, that is, those who are not in positions of authority in the church? So we want to answer those four questions. So we've talked about repentance. Now we're moving on to the responsibility aspect of this passage. So God appointed Ezekiel to be a prophet, God's messenger, and the whole point is that God gives Ezekiel his words and what does God expect Ezekiel to do? You speak those words to the people. And the message as we know is repentance. He's called to speak to the nation of Israel and God's message is repent or die. I love you, I don't want you to die, you need to repent. And nothing's changed. So there's a quote from John Corson I'm just going to read out to you. God told Ezekiel he was a watchman. In that day, watchmen walked the walls of the city. Their job was to look for enemies and also to shout out the time to the city. Ezekiel was to warn the people of what was coming and to make them aware of the times in which they were living. If the people didn't listen and died in their sins, it wouldn't be Ezekiel's fault. If, however, he failed to warn them, their blood would be upon his head. In Acts 20, Paul would reiterate this when he said, Acts 20, verse 26 and 27, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare, or have not avoided declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So let's jump into Ezekiel chapter 3 and read verses 16 and 17. So it says, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. So this is really important. We are literally God's mouthpiece. Do you realize when you're talking to your friends about the Lord, God is using you. The Holy Spirit is using us 
to be his messenger. That's the application here. We're going to get to that more later. In verse 16 it says, Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, So he's been there with his countrymen in exile, sitting with them by the riverbank for seven days. And at the end of those seven days, God again reveals himself to Ezekiel. And he gives him this message. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. So this is a very common theme in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, and as read in the New Testament too. People being called to warn people of the judgment that is coming because of sin. And I like these verses in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. And this is Paul speaking as a teacher of the Bible. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare or have not avoided declaring to you the whole counsel of God. God wants us to be able to understand what the Word says and to be able to share it with others. So we're going to come back to this a bit later on. Verses 18 and 19 in Ezekiel chapter 3. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from or repent of his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So again, this whole thing in verse 19 there, yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from or repent of his wickedness, he will die in his sin. That's what the central theme, the main point of Ezekiel's message was, it's repentance. And what is repentance again? Turning from sin and turning to God. So that's basically why I've spent so much time talking about repentance, because that's the main message of the gospel. It's the foundation of the gospel. If you don't teach about sin and repentance, you haven't taught the gospel. And I've done my best to show throughout the entire scripture that that's the central part of God's message to people. In verses 18 and 19, it says, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, you have delivered your soul. Now, this presents a bit of a conundrum, a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Is Ezekiel going to lose his salvation? Is Ezekiel going to go to hell if he fails to warn people? That's how you could read this. But no. I'll explain why. We need to consider that under the Mosaic law, life and death refer to physical death. The law always referred to physical blessings and punishments or curses for the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 18.20, guess what the specific punishment for the false prophet was? Death. And a couple of quotes from a couple of different commentators. Life and death in this context are to be understood as physical, not eternal life and death. The concept of life and death in the Mosaic Covenant is primarily physical. That was Alexander, and David Guzik says, Death was part of God's promised curse for disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant, as I said. 
if you're a false prophet, the penalty for that under the law was physical death. You'd be stoned. So, why? Why would Ezekiel die physically if he turned from being a true prophet, one who spoke only what God told him to speak, to being a false prophet, one who spoke lies like the products of his own dreams and imaginations? As I said, it's because God often literally punished the false prophets with death. And here's an example. Now, the whole story is in Jeremiah 28, so when you go home you can read it yourself. It's quite interesting. It goes back and forth between Jeremiah and Hananiah. So this is an excerpt of the conversation between Hananiah and Jeremiah. And listen to what happens. And Hananiah, he's a false prophet, one of them, spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. That's his prophecy to the people. It's a false prophecy. Verse 12, Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and then it goes on, Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. It's pretty serious, hey? You have taught rebellion against the Lord. Verse 17, So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Now, at the start of the chapter, it was the fifth month. So from the fifth month to the seventh month, it's two months. Two months later, he was dead. God is serious about showing that the false prophets will be judged. Now, not all of them were killed within two months, but this one was. And the people should have woken up, but they didn't. So, (laughs) how would you be? You know, you're a false prophet, you're Hananiah, you mean well, you want to encourage people, but, you know, two months later you're dead. So why such a severe judgment? Why was he judged so severely? Given false hope, he claimed to be speaking in the name of the Lord. He said, thus says the Lord. But he wasn't speaking in the name of the Lord. Now, even though his message was positive and he made the people feel good about themselves, he was actually hurting the people in the worst possible way. He was teaching rebellion against God by causing them to believe a lie. He was teaching, actually, the exact opposite of what God was saying. Now, what was the lie that he taught? Well, they didn't have to repent of their sin and turn back to God like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were teaching. He taught that you can just do whatever you want. Like every other false prophet, he taught that everything's okay, that God loved them or blessed them, and that they could continue to live as they were, and they didn't have to repent of their wickedness. He taught that as long as they kept worshipping God at the temple, they kept following or keeping or observing all the outward religious rituals, rules and regulations. Remember, these Jews were still worshipping at the temple, still offering sacrifices, still singing, still praying. As long as they kept on doing these things, then they didn't have to change their wicked ways and God would make everything okay again. And he specifically predicted that the Babylonians would be defeated and the captives would come home within two years. And that's a great message if you're living in fear of an enemy army. Someone 
this prophet says to you, the enemy is going to be defeated. All the captives are going to come home. So they all loved his message and they all felt great. But what's the consequence of his lies, his false teaching? Well, many of the people were deceived because it says you make this people trust in a lie. And do you know how many converts Jeremiah had? <laughs> Basically none. So these false prophets were very successful. Jeremiah, humanly speaking, was very unsuccessful. From God's eyes, he was very successful. Why? Because he was faithful to continue to proclaim God's message. So the result of Hananiah's lie and of the other false prophets saying the same thing or similar things was that the people refused to repent of their sins. They refused to humble themselves before God. And therefore, as predicted by God, they died as they vainly resisted both God and the Babylonian army. So, another example. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 6. And this is concerning another false prophet called Pashua. And you, Pashua, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there. You and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. That's what Jeremiah said to him. So God treats Pashua differently. He's still going to die, but he's going to die in shame. He's going to die in front of all his friends, and he's going to watch all his friends die, whoever dies first, in Babylon. Guess what he told them? You're not going there. In fact, everyone's going to come home. But what happened? He was wrong. Do you reckon these false prophets actually thought that they were telling the truth? Do you reckon they wanted it to be true? I reckon they did. But the fact of the matter here is that it's just his imagination, it's just his dream, it's his desire, his what he wants. And he's always going to be remembered as a false prophet. Now, it's important here, it's an important thing. The fact that both the deceiver and the deceived, the deceiver being the false prophet and the deceived being the people who listened to him, they both went into captivity. They all went into captivity. So the punishment for believing the lie is you will go into captivity. You will suffer the error of the lies that you choose to believe. So the person, the individual, is responsible to discern truth from error. We are all responsible for ourselves. If a person chooses to believe a lie, it's just that. It's their free choice. They chose to believe the lie. Now, why do people want to believe the lie? It's because they want to believe what they want to be true. Whatever it is that makes them feel good. And you go, are you sure about that, Dave? Well, well, let's find out. And we come to our next question. Why are people deceived? Why would they reject God's message? 2 Timothy 4, 1-5 I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. 
for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not listen. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, false teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions and do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So I want to just point out that there's two stages in being deceived. And we get this from 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. It says, But according to their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. Who's doing this? Is it the false teacher or is it the person? It's the person. This is the choice. This is the start of being deceived. They are deliberately rejecting or denying or saying no to what they know to be right and true. They are exercising their free choice to believe or not believe. And the second part there, and be turned aside to fables. So only once they have already decided to reject the truth will they then be right to be deceived. And that's why those who were deceived by the false prophets and the false teachers are ultimately responsible for themselves being deceived because they could only be deceived if they had first rejected the truth. It's pretty sobering, isn't it? We believe what we want to believe to be true. If we don't like it, then we don't believe it. And it's our pride. We see this also in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9-12. to It's talking about the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now, who are the ones who are going to be deceived? Watch this. Watch carefully. Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. They did not receive it, you see. They did not believe it. They did not accept it. Verse 11, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, have you figured out why God allows false prophets yet? It's a free choice, isn't it? There's got to be a choice. God gives them the truth, and he also allows there to be a lie. And so the people can choose. God isn't going to force people to believe the truth. It's got to be their choice. God will do everything he can to make the truth obvious. He'll do signs like the prophets. They could do signs. They could predict things, and they came true. The true prophets this is. And people knew that they were true prophets. But they didn't like the message, and so they didn't listen to them. They listened to the false prophets instead. I mean, you think about the people in Jerusalem. Hananiah died within two months of Jeremiah saying he was going to die. Did the people start listening to Jeremiah? No. They still rejected Jeremiah's message, even though what Jeremiah actually said would happen did happen. So the people should have known, and in my mind, really they did know. I think people really do know the truth deep down. 
And they knew that Jeremiah and Ezekiel were true prophets because what they said came true and, this is important, it agreed with the scriptures. All through the Bible, God has been telling people and the nation of Israel especially to repent. But they didn't believe or receive this message of repentance because it wasn't a positive message, if I can call it that. You know, today we'd have these guys, what do we call them? Um, motivational speakers. They make you feel good. Well, the gospel initially, it's good news, but initially it doesn't make you feel good. First, we need to humble ourselves and repent. We need to turn from our sin and then we can be saved. So like Jesus, Jeremiah and Ezekiel testified that the people's works for evil and that without genuine repentance they would die. That's what we must say. And guess what? Is everyone going to believe our message? Is everyone going to accept our message? No. And Jesus says, like they rejected me, they're going to reject you. And so because the people didn't like the message, they chose to believe the false prophets instead. Why? Because they didn't want to give up their sin. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the reason they did not receive the love of the truth so they could be saved was they had pleasure in sin. Now, one more example of another false prophet who was judged by God in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 29.31, and this prophet is called Shemaiah. I think they say it, Shemaiah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Send to all those in captivity, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nelamite. Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you, and I have not sent him, and he has caused you to trust in a lie, therefore thus says the Lord, I will punish Shemaiah the Nelamite and his family, and he shall not have anyone to dwell among this people, nor shall he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. So, just wanted to show you that there are multiple false prophets, God was dealing with them, but the people still put their trust in them. Now, there's one final warning against the false prophets, and this also includes, and is specific to actually, those who teach the Bible in the New Testament, whether they're prophets or teachers, doesn't matter. Jude is like the New Testament version of Jeremiah 23. And Jeremiah 23 is a good chapter to read in your own time as well. It talks about the false prophets, what they do, what they're like, and the consequences of their false teaching. So here, it's also a comprehensive description of the false prophet and the harm he causes the people. So we're basically going to read through the book of Jude, but only bits of it to save time. So starting in verse 3 in the book of Jude, it says, Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else. I wonder what this thing is. Urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Isn't that what the... False prophets were saying, you don't need to change. Just, you know, keep going to church, you're okay. 
The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this condemnation that was recorded long ago is going to be given now. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. Okay, this is the condemnation of the false prophets, false teachers. They will be destroyed, like the unfaithful of Israel. And verse 6, And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. Okay, what's that? The false prophets, their day of judgment is coming. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. So basically, the warning here is that false teachers, false prophets, are in serious trouble. In the same way, verse 8, these people who claim authority from their dreams... Now, that's in contrast to the Word of God, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 23. So, in the same way, these people, these false prophets, who claim authority from their dreams, live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But these people scoff at things they do not understand, like unthinking animals. This is pretty important here. They do whatever their instincts tell them, What's that? It's their sinful human nature. They're not led by the Spirit. They do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. Verse 11. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. Ah, sound familiar? And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you, in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love. They are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like wandering stars, doomed forever to blackest darkness. It sounds like the Old Testament, doesn't it? But this is the New Testament. This is for modern day false teachers. Nothing's changed. Same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their own desires. You think about how rich some of these false prophets are. They brag loudly about themselves, and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted, yeah? They told you that in the last times there will be scoffers whose purpose in life is to what? Build up the church? No to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. So I went through all that just to show that even in our modern age, Nothing's changed. Just like Jeremiah was struggling with the false prophets in his age, guess what? It was predicted that in the last days, we're in the last days, 
In fact, it's been the last day since Jesus came. Because he can come back any time. We are struggling with these false prophets. God has allowed these false prophets, so people have a choice. Truth or the lie, they can choose. If they love their sin, they don't want to come to the truth. If they're willing to repent of their sin, then they'll come to the truth and reject the false prophets. So before we move on, I want to go through some of the characteristics of these false teachers or false prophets. So in verse 4, it says they encourage or allow immoral living. In verse 8, it says they have dreams and claim that God has spoken to them. It says, who claim authority from their dreams, but they are mistaken. And here's what it says in Jeremiah 23, 28 to 29. The prophet who has a dream, so just to clarify there, that that's a false prophet who has a dream. Let him tell a dream, and he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. So there's a contrast here, which is better, which is more helpful, a dream or the word of God. What is the chaff, that's like the dreams, worthless, to the wheat, the word of God, says the Lord. Is not my word like a fire? And the point there is that the fire will burn up the chaff. The message of these false prophets will be shown to be false and it will be gone. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Behold, I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who use their tongues and say, he says, or God says. Behold, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, says the Lord, and tell them, and cause my people to err by their lies and by their recklessness. Yet I did not send them or command them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, says the Lord. What's one of the main characteristics of a false prophet? How do they get their messages? How do they encourage people to hear from God? Dreams. Dreams, yeah. Now, that's a good point. Visions and dreams. There are visions and dreams from God. Absolutely, yes. Joseph, for example. Daniel had visions. But how do you know if your vision or dream is from God, or it's just your own imagination? It's got to be confirmed by the Word of God. If it's not confirmed with the Word of God, if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, then it's just your imagination. It might make people happy, it might make people feel good, but if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, throw it away. If you're not sure, just leave it. The third point that characterizes the false prophet is that they deceive people for money. That's in verse 11 in Jude. Verse 12, they shipwreck people's faith. They destroy people's faith with their lies. Verse 12 also says, they are useless shepherds who care only about themselves. They don't feed the flock. And the sixth one there, verse 16 and 18, their one purpose in life is to satisfy their craving for pleasure. And I've seen some of the way these, you know, for example, televangelists live and some of these pastors who, you know, basically ripping off their congregation, living the high life, 
uh, with nice shoes, nice suits, nice cars, while the rest of the congregation is dirt poor. It's just wrong. They boast and brag about themselves and they promote themselves. They flatter others to get what they want. They create divisions among the church. And verse 19, they are led by their sinful human nature because they don't have God's Spirit in them. So again, this should remind you, this should make you think of the tele-evangelists that are on the tube these days. <laughs> They're in the high life. And what are they teaching? The false gospel is the prosperity gospel. It's the same thing as was being taught in Jeremiah's day. Just keep on doing what you want. God's going to bless you physically in this life now. Good health, wealth, physical blessings. It's all yours. Just sow a seed and reap the reward. <laughs> as they say, you know, give money to the false prophet and God will bless you. So the false prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel's day were no different. And the bigger the following the false prophet had, and the better they made the people feel, the more money they received, the more income they got, the more prestige and praise they received. And therefore, they kept on doing it. They just kept selling more lies and finding ways to make people feel even better and impress them and make themselves look good. And that's basically the cycle. Now, moving on to our responsibility. We talked about how God would judge the false prophet with death. That was in Deuteronomy. And we, sometimes he did that straight away. Sometimes it was delayed. You might be thinking, oh, maybe your heart's thumping. You know, is God going to kill me? Am I going to die if I fail to share the gospel with everyone I meet? No. So. Basically, I want to clarify that there are different consequences for different people based on the level of responsibility or authority in the church. It's the people in positions of authority in the church who teach the word that have the greatest responsibility, while others have a lesser responsibility and therefore a lesser consequence. But we all have some responsibility. So we're going to first look at the responsibility of the people in authority in the church who teach the Bible first. So the responsibility of teachers, pastors, and prophets. James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. As I said, there's different judgments with different levels of authority. Greater privilege, greater responsibility. And 1 Timothy 1, 5 to 7 from the NLT, it says, The purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with the love that comes from a pure heart, a clean conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They have turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions. They want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses. Well, in our day, they're teachers of the law, Bible teachers. But they don't know what they are talking about, even though they speak so confidently. They want to be known as teachers. They speak so confidently, but what does the Bible say? They don't know what they're talking about. So the judgment of Bible teachers and pastors and church leaders that lead people astray is what we read about in the book of Jude. And there's a guy called Clark, he's a Bible commentator, and he's written this quote, and it captures the severity of the consequences 
waiting for false teachers or prophets as described in Jude. So I'll just read it to you. He says this, Hear it, you priests, you preachers, you ministers of the gospel, you especially who have entered into ministry for a living, you who gather a congregation to yourselves that you may feed upon their fat and clothe yourselves with their wool, in whose parishes and in whose congregation souls are dying unconverted from day to day, who have never been solemnly warned by you and to whom you have never shown the way of salvation, probably because you know nothing of it yourselves. Oh, what a perdition awaits you, to have the blood of every soul that has died in your parishes or in your congregations unconverted laid at your door. To suffer a common damnation for every soul that perishes through your neglect. How many loads of endless woe must such have to bear? You take your tithes, your stipends, or your rents to the last grain and the last penny, or the last cent. While the souls over whom you made yourselves watchmen, there's that word again, watchmen, have perished and are perishing through your neglect. O worthless and helpless men, better for you had you never been born. Vain is your boast of apostolical authority while you do not the work of apostles. Vain your boast of orthodoxy while you neither show nor know the way of salvation. Vain your pretensions to a divine call when you do not do the work of evangelists. The state of the most wretched of the human race is enviable to that of such ministers, pastors, teachers and preachers. It's pretty sobering, eh? So that's the way he puts it. He said, watch out. If you're a Bible teacher, you watch out. You better be careful. And Jesus was also very blunt about this when he warned of the serious condemnation that awaits those who lead others astray. Matthew 18, 6 and 7. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offences. For offences must come, but woe to that man by whom the offence comes. So, it's kind of scary being a Bible teacher because there's a lot of responsibility because it's not just Everyday things, we're talking about eternal destinies of people. Standing before God. Okay, now what does God require of the everyday believer? So, not the Bible teachers in the church, but what does God require of the everyday believer? What did Paul teach in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 and 21? We are... A new creation, and because of that, God has made us to be Christ's ambassadors. God is pleading through us, be reconciled to God. So, as believers, we represent and reflect the heart of God as he seeks to what? What's his goal? To reconcile man to God. He wants to reconcile a lost world back to himself through Christ. And this is our purpose in life. We'll have a read of this. Second Corinthians 5. 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So have a look at what Paul says here in verse 18. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19. And has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Again, it's on Christ's behalf. This is the responsibility of every believer. And what's our message? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, like in Ezekiel's day, it's warning people about sin. We're all born with a corrupted nature, a sin nature. We are telling people that Jesus is a payment for our sin, for example, 1 John 2, 2, and that he became sin for us. Now, what we've been talking about with repentance is this doesn't mean anything to people if they don't first understand that they are sinners and that they are already condemned to eternity in the lake of fire. So yes, it's a difficult message, but if we love people, then we'll be willing to be honest with them about the truth of their eternal destiny if they don't repent. Okay, so John 3.36, it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It remains on him, it's already on him, and it will remain on him if he doesn't believe. So, just a little example here. If you don't remind people or help people to understand that they are guilty sinners deserving of punishment before you tell them that Jesus died for their sins, it's like this. All right. Imagine you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you need to go to Perth. You need to go to the hospital. You need to you know, get somewhere to live, someone to look after you because you're going to go and get some chemotherapy drugs pumped into your arm for a week at a time, for a period of five weeks, you know, five-week course of chemotherapy, and you go, why would I want to do that? I'm not doing that. And daughter says, but you must. It's good for you. And you think, you know, it's not. But if he tells you first you've got cancer, then it's different. You see? What about if I go up to someone and say, hey, listen, I've paid you a $30,000 speeding fine. And they go, what are you talking about? Are you crazy? But don't you appreciate that I've just taken $30,000 off my mortgage and, and paid your speeding fine so you don't have to pay it? But I don't have a speeding fine. I don't care. Go away. But if you first tell them that 
you know, when you were driving the other night, you were drunk and you actually did some material damage and you're going really fast through a disabled people's zone or something like that, you know, then they go, oh, no, really? I did that? I was drunk. I didn't even know I did it. Man, I'm in trouble. That's okay. I paid you fine. You're free. Ah, thank you very much. You see the difference? So that's why God is telling Ezekiel, tell the people that they need to repent of their sin. Before people accept the medicine, they need to know they're sick. Now, what consequence is there for us if we, as just run-of-the-mill believers, not Bible teachers, for us if we don't tell people about the Lord? Well, we just don't get rewarded. Second Corinthians 5, 9-10 Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him, to God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So we will all have to give an account. So going back a little bit, why are Bible teachers judged more harshly? Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. With privilege comes responsibility. And what does God expect of believers in general? What is the basic requirement that all believers should attain to? What did God expect of us to know and to do? So I just want to go through that. First Peter 3.15 But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, that's apologian, to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So that's the first scripture. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, an apology, a reasoned defense to everyone who asks you a question for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Second one, 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So every believer should know the Bible. Every believer should be reading the Bible so they can understand what it says and accurately explain it. At least the gospel part of it. And 2 Timothy 2.15 is the same verse but from the King James. It says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So study. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. How? It's all about being in the word. It starts with being in the word. So what does it mean to, to break it down? All believers should know the Bibles. They should know how to effectively share the gospel and understand the basic evidences that confirm the truth of the Bible. So, you know, give a reason for what you believe. It's true because, and have something to say, yeah? Now, this is as God gives you the ability to do so. So, for example, someone who's not scientifically minded, they won't understand DNA and they won't be able to explain to a university student, how DNA is our evidence for design and for a designer that God designed people. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up. That's just not you. But what we should all know is the gospel. We should all be able to effectively 
share the gospel. If you don't know how to share the gospel, then you're not equipped and therefore not effective as an ambassador of Christ. So how do we become equipped? Again, get in the Word, read it, study it, and be taught, trained, and equipped by pastors and teachers. And importantly, once you hear the Word taught, it must be applied. So it's fine coming to church and hearing. It's fine reading the Bible even when you're reading it for yourself and you hear what God says. But what happens if you don't do it? Is it going to help you? No. So, spend time during the week revising the message and seeing where God is showing you that you need to grow or change. And now I just want to encourage you guys because I see that many are hungry and thirsty for the Word of God. It's really good. I see that there are some who are actively seeking to equip themselves to share the gospel as they complete the Way of the Master basic evangelism training course. There's others who are studying the books of Daniel and Revelation to better understand the basics of biblical prophecy. And that's really good. So you guys, you know, you're on the way. And once you are equipped, you will be much more confident to be able to be the ambassador that God wants you to be. You'll be able to be used by God more. So the better equipped you are, the more confident you'll be. It's like a soldier on the battlefield. If you, as Ray Comfort says, if you're a soldier on the battlefield, you know, with your board shorts and thongs and a feather duster fighting against tanks, then you're going to struggle. You're not going to be very confident at all. But if you're armed with the gospel and you know how to explain it, then you're going to be a lot more confident. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So that's my job now. Your job is to be in the Word and to be equipped. Now, whose job is it to lead people to the Lord? Is it mine or is it yours? It's all of ours, right? Yeah. And I like what Chuck Smith said before, a long time ago. He said, healthy sheep reproduce naturally. Healthy sheep reproduce naturally. So basically, if the sheep, the congregation is healthy, well-fed, equipped, then they will naturally share the gospel and the church will naturally grow. So there's no excuse for us, really. Our very purpose as a new creation in Christ is to bring others into relationship with God. That's why God put us in his family for. That's our role. And God invites us to partner with him in his mission. Remember, it's not our mission, it's his mission. But he invites us to partner with him, and therefore it becomes our mission as well, yeah? We join with God into his 
work. And so the invitation is there for us as believers. Will I join him in his work? And this is an awesome privilege. It's a big responsibility, but it's an awesome privilege. Will I take it seriously? Will I have reward at the beam of seat judgment? Will I hear God say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good ambassador. And just read a couple of verses to finish. 1 Corinthians 3.9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. We are his fellow workers. He invites us to come alongside him and join him in his work. Matthew 28, 18-20, a reminder of our call as ambassadors. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's a great commission. And lastly, Daniel 12, 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's the reward of being a faithful ambassador for Christ. So application, the main point that we can get for ourselves today, it's the responsibility of all believers to study the Bible for themselves according to their ability to do so. And I believe the minimum expectation based on what I've read, is to be able to explain and share the gospel effectively. To be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, if I have time to watch TV, play sport, play computer games, surf the internet, and browse social media, whatever, but I don't have time to read the Bible and become equipped to share the gospel effectively, it leads to two possible conclusions. First, I'm saved but my priorities are messed up, or I don't care because I'm a false convert. Either way, the answer is repent. I need to repent my worldliness as a Christian or repent and ask God to save me from my sins if I'm not. So let's pray. Father, we see that this whole thing about being a watchman, about being an ambassador, is throughout the whole Bible. Lord, we are joining you in your great mission to bring people back into the family of God to reconcile a lost world back to God. Lord, help us to realize that in all the other things that we do in life, nothing is as important as this. I pray that this will be our first priority. I pray that this, that seeking first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto us, Lord. All the things that we chase and spend time on and, and seek, Lord, help us to realize that we should be first, seeking first the kingdom of God. Help us to be truly submitted to you, to be listening to you. And Lord, the truth hurts sometimes. Help us to humble ourselves, to accept the truth, and to avoid being deceived. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.